guys would open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 will be where we get our lesson from this morning and we're going to start at. We'll, we'll go to other places, but it's kind of our theme verse here. Um, thankful for the opportunity, as always, just to be able to just be encouraged by being here, being a part of the group and worshiping with you guys. Appreciate the class that uh, Reggie led. Appreciate the songs that were led. Uh, also, just focusing our minds on heaven is just really encouraging to know that there's other saints um, that also love the Lord and in their love challenge you to love the Lord more. Um, so this morning, I would like to talk about grace. Um, and so Titus chapter 2, uh, we'll start in verse 11, but um, kind of just getting there and why I'd like to talk about grace this morning. Um, as you know, we live in a world that is constantly trying to attack our relationship with God, and we can think that to the influence of Satan in the world itself, just in many different ways that we're challenged in our lives to just love God more. We're challenged because of our faith and our love and our dedication to the Lord. Um, and there's many ways that happens, but I think there's one way that um, that occurs that can sometimes be a little bit more subtle um, to pick up on or to understand or realize. Um, but there's a lie or there's this fake idea that's out there um, that God does not love us unless we live perfect lives. God does not really want to uh, really, really be close to us. We're really not going to receive these rewards and these blessings that God has promised to us unless we complete everything and do everything faultlessly or perfectly. Uh, obviously, that's you know where repentance comes in. That's where grace comes in. Uh, but sometimes in that idea of thinking we have to live perfect, faultless lives, we can then begin to assume and think that God is lurk- looking for some sort of super Christian. He's looking for somebody who knows every single passage, who somehow prays 25 hours a day in a 24-hour day. Somebody who every person they meet, every person they touch, instantly becomes the most faithful Christian you've ever met. We've got these standards that, being exaggerating them, but in this mind we know we have these standards, these false expectations that are there about what God is really looking for. Things that none of us can ever possibly live up to. And something that God himself as, actually is not even looking for. Um, we already understand there's the perfect standard Jesus, and none of us are ever going to be able to accomplish that. Uh, yet God is still can be so pleased with us. And I think we can begin to discourage ourselves when we really want to try to commit to this idea, really try to live up to this false standard that we have for ourselves. We can begin to discourage ourselves by trying to expect something out of ourselves that God himself isn't even really looking for and try to also compare ourselves maybe to people who we think are, are more faithful, maybe are more dedicated. They have attributes we'd really like to have and we can begin to think in our mind well we'll never be like brother or sister so and so we'll never be able to do this we'll never be able to do that so why should i try at all and i think what can be missing in our minds is really understanding god's grace and really understanding what does it mean for god to be a gracious god what does it mean to be recipients of that grace um and that's really where I want to go to here this morning, starting in Titus chapter 2. Um, so chi- Titus chapter 2, we'll start in verse 11 and read to the end of the chapter here. Very short reading. Um, so Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Um, So in Titus chapter 2, the way that God's grace is understood here 
is salvation. That's one of the ways that looking at uh, the passage here, this is specifically what Paul is, is telling Titus about here, is really the grace of God, what he's describing here, is really seen in salvation being brought to all mankind. Um, and so what's really interesting is sometimes there's a definition, um, and this is a good and right definition, if I'd ask you how to define grace, or someone asked me, the very quick answer, I'd say, well, unmerited favor. This idea that God gives me things and does things for me, not on some basis of how good of a person I am or things I can do for him, but just because of his love for me. And I think that would be a good and that's a right definition. Um, but the interesting thing about grace, and I'm pretty sure uh, we most of us have seen this in the world, is sometimes grace can be understood in a way that actually devalues um, serving God. Actually, in a way where we can be, um, at least in the world can teach it, we think about it in doctrines of this idea of irresistible grace, or once saved, always saved. This idea that God loves me so much, it doesn't matter whatever I possibly do, that I am still going to heaven. I am still in a right relationship with him, no matter what I can do. Um, and that's just really not what we see within Scripture. And really interestingly, that definition of grace is, can be seen in a way as a means, well, I really don't have to do the things that are commanded. Well, I really don't have to live this way if God loves me so much. Um, and the really interesting thing about here is, is the fact that God's grace is the means and the reason why we want to serve him. It's the reason why we turn away from living ungodly, unrighteous, unfruitful lives. And how the passage says here in verse 12, how we want to then begin to live sensibly. How we then begin to want to live righteously and godly because of the salvation the gracious salvation that God has given us, being compelled by that to want to live this way. Um, and so, and the lesson this morning, uh, there's just really made two main points um, I want to talk about and focus on, and really trying to understand how does God's grace really do instruct us, though? Um, how can we see just the things that God has done, the, 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 just the love and the dedication that we see within God and his attitude towards us, the things that he's accomplished, the resources that he spent to receive us, to redeem us in salvation. Um, how can we think about that in a way and, and begin to practically apply that in our lives to where we really are compelled by his grace to live this way? Um, so there's just two points um, this morning. Is One, I want to flood our minds, uh, all of our minds, with just being reminded about God's love for us. And the second point, um, want to flood our lives with application because of God's love for us. Ways in which if we really think about God's grace and we really understand it in a very personal way, well, what should be the natural reaction? What, what ways do we want to live our lives and change the way we're living to fit with that grace that's there? Um, so those are just the two points we'll be focused on here this morning. Um, so talking about flooding our minds, being reminded and just overwhelmed by God's love for us and his grace. Uh, let's start actually in the Old Testament. If you would turn to the book of Hosea with me. So Hosea it is right after Daniel, and Hosea is probably the longest, I think it is the longest, or, or one of the longer ones of the minor prophets that are here. Um, and Hosea is a very interesting prophet. Um, all the prophets in their own ways are different and interesting and unique, but Hosea is a special case. Um, in the beginning, if we look at Hosea chapter 1, we won't read um, on big chunks here, we'll read a section in chapter 3, but we'll just glaze over this just to get a feel for Hosea. Um, Hosea is told to do something very strange, very odd. Um, in verse 2, God comes to Hosea and he tells him, and he instructs him to get up and to basically tells him to marry a woman who's not going to love you, marry a harlot. And you imagine, well, this is a very interesting book already. My interest has been piqued. This is not the way most books of the Bible start here. Well, this is interesting. Um, and through that, uh, Hosea has, uh, there's children that are brought to him. Obviously, as you imagine, he's married a harlot, Gomer. Uh, she cheats on him. She's unfaithful to him. And over the next couple of chapters, we 
begin to see lessons that God was trying to teach Hosea about the way Israel had treated him. Hosea was supposed to love Gomer as, as his wife and be as committed to her as possible, even if she wasn't going to be committed to him. And that's exactly God's dedication to the nation Israel. That he was so committed to them, he was so committed to the world, despite the way that Israel betrayed him, left him just like a harlot would leave him, and went to other gods and other nations for their help. Um, so that's an illustration God's trying to get him to understand here. Um, but something really interesting happens, and I think it's, it's a type, and it's an example of what God does for us. So in chapter 3, um, we'll read just the first couple of verses here. Um, so look at chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Verse 2, So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. So what happens here because of this love, because of this, uh, this, this love that God's instructing for Hosea to have here, what he has to do is he has to then go buy and purchase his bride. He has to go and pay a price to redeem and receive this wife of his. And hopefully you can begin to see the connection. Is I really, I've looked it up, and I don't remember off the top of my head how much 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley is, but, but that's not enough for a human life. You know, this, this woman is being sold as, as a slave because of her own attitudes and, and the situation she's put herself in. So Hosea pays this menial amount to redeem her. Um, and let's compare that with what God has paid for us. God has not paid 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley for us. He's shed the blood of his own son and paid the price of pretty much his own life, the life of his son, to be able to redeem us. Um, and what that was meant to hopefully do for, for, for Hosea's wife here um, was to show how much he was willing to do to, to take her back, how much he was willing to do to sacrifice for her and to be in a relationship with her. And hopefully that's the same thing when we're compelled uh, and we understand what God has done exactly to receive us by paying Jesus as a ransom, by treating, by allowing him to be treated as a robber and a sinner and his blood to be shed and paid so that we can be redeemed. Hopefully that does something in our hearts to see how much we really need to God if he's willing to pay that price for him, for us. Uh, you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you look at verse 20. Uh, this is really that concept comes from that we've been bought with a price. God has paid for us. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, For you have been bought with a price, therefore, therefore glorify God in your body. And that price being Jesus himself. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Uh, you look at Romans chapter 8, um, and uh, scan down and, and fall down and look at verse 32. And he says there, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Uh, this is one of my favorite passages, by the way, favorite scriptures. So the idea that, yes, God spent Jesus. He, he didn't spare his own son. He didn't hesitate to spend Jesus so that we could be redeemed and we could be saved. But that's not even all. God is willing to still, although he spent Jesus once, is still willing to use him to be able to freely give us all things. How will he not also, with him, freely give us all things? He wasn't just willing to use Jesus once. He was willing to use Jesus as much as he needed to use Jesus to redeem us and to continue to help us and to continue to serve us. Um, God was willing to pay not just, just some sort of small few pieces of silver and some wheat. He was willing to pay the most precious thing, the most valuable thing that he had to redeem us. 
who have, were reminded exactly what condition we were in. We were not the most holy, righteous, most peaceable, kind people who were just ready to serve God when we were redeemed and when we were saved. Uh, as Romans 5 tells us, and I look at it a little bit later, uh, we were sinners. We were very well the enemies of God at that time. Who pays the life of their own child for someone who hates them? That's God's grace. And it's meant to compel us and meant to shock us and overwhelm us by the love that he has for us. Um, another, another point in this is you can look at, um, honestly, the book of Romans as a whole to be reminded of God's grace for us constantly over and over and over again. Paul, just in very different ways, very interesting, unique ways, reminds them of just how much God loves them, what God was willing to do and endure and sacrifice to redeem them and to get a relationship with them. Um, and sometimes he's speaking to the Jews and sometimes he's speaking uh, to the Gentiles that are there, but all of them were in need of God's grace. Um, and so we'll stick in Romans chapter 8, but uh, we'll start in verse 31 and read to the end of the chapter here. So starting in verse 31 of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hopefully you got the idea that God's really committed to this thing. He's, he's, <laughs> he's not willy-nilly got into a relationship with us and just, yeah, if it works out, it doesn't work out. And it just doesn't really matter to me. Um, it, I, just, I just love the language that Paul has here. He, he brings up in verse 33, so who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to come up and who's going to accuse them? Who's going to be one who's going to be able to accuse and condemn them? And he tells them, well, God's the one who justifies here. <laughs> so is anybody going to be able to go against God and justifying us? And he's like, okay, well... Uh, well, who is the one who's able to condemn us? Uh, well, Christ Jesus is the one who died. He's the one who's raised. He's the one who's at the right hand of God. He's the one who intercedes for us. Who can possibly, who else could possibly help us in that situation? We have Jesus who's on our side. He's saying these ideas, these situations we find ourselves in, even if we're condemned, even if we're, we're in need of justification, it's the same God who was committed to us at the beginning of our salvation is the one who does those things. There is no one who is able to separate us from God's love. The, the scary reality is the only one who's able to do that is us. And we, we even looked at um, Timothy earlier, this, this idea, even if the passage was quoted, even if we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. God is committed even in times and moments where we very well may not be committed. And that's God's grace. How committed he is to that end, to the end of our souls, or end of our, our, our faith, which is our salvation of our souls. Um, you can also look at Romans chapter 3 as well. Chapter 5 is also a really good passage to, to just think about God's grace and dedication to us. Um, I also really like Romans chapter 3. We'll start in verse 21 and again read to the end of the chapter here and just make a few points. Um, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 
being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus, who, who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? That is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith, the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. And so, um, if you focus back onto uh, verse 23, um, where he says, For all have sinned and fall short, or fallen short, of the glory of God. Uh, it's the idea that we all fall into the same category that is here. I know when we began and we started talking here, this idea that we can come up with this, this fake standard, this, this arbitrary standard of the perfect Christian in our minds, and we need to live up to that standard. Um, it, it, and we can sometimes look at different individuals. Well, you know, they, they, they really know their Bible really well. They, man, everybody who they touch and they talk to absolutely just obeys the gospel. These other attributes that we ourselves may not have and think, well, God really can't be pleased with me. I've got nothing to offer. God says here, well, we were all in need of his grace. It doesn't matter if brother or sister so-and-so can do this or do that. We all need his grace then, and we still need it now, and we'll need it tomorrow and the next day. Um, we're all in the same boat. Um, and another thing that as well is, is God going as far, you see in verse 24 as well, being justified as a gift by his grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. This idea, what's it called here? It's described as a gift. It's not described as something that only goes to those who've really, really worked hard for it. That's actually... Um, 27, kind of to the end of the chapter, is kind of describing that, that God is really focused on those who are willing to have faith in him. He's not really interested in those who are able to do things for him. God's looking for faith. And as we talked about last time that I was here, true faith does, you know, it, it bears fruit, it bears actions. But he's looking for those who believe in him, those who trust in him, those who are willing to act and live in faith. God justifies by faith and not by works. Um, and what he's saying here, that's, that's the way his grace works. It's extended, and it's given, and it's attached to those who are willing to live in faith. Living in faith is something that we're all capable of doing. Um, maybe some of us are not able to speak. Maybe some of us really have a hard time with maybe reading our Bible. Maybe sometimes it just takes us forever to understand a passage. Um, and that's okay. That's all right. God is interested in those who are willing to believe and trust in him despite those difficulties that are there. And that's what faith means. I remember last time when we looked at Romans chapter 4, we talked about Abraham. Believing in God despite the difficulties that surround us. That's who God attaches himself to. That's who's really righteous in his eyes. Um, so that's point number one. Uh, just Hopefully just having our minds overwhelmed and, and understanding, well, God has really invested a lot. He's spent a lot. He's gone to such great lengths and distances to redeem us, to be able to get into this relationship with us, those who've been saved by faith through grace. Um, and so God transitioning, talking about, well, well, then how, if I'm really thinking about those things, what are ways I can then begin to live and make changes and applications in my life to really fit within God's grace if I'm really compelled by it? Um, if you want to go back and turn to Titus chapter 2, um, we'll go back there and, and, and make a point as we talk about this section of application. Um, but I just have an illustration in mind. Think about a, um, a, a young teenager, maybe someone who's 16 years old, 
and they just got their driver's license, and, and all you want to do when you're 16 years old is really drive a car. Um, and you imagine what his parents do for him. They can't really afford a brand new, super nice car vehicle. They get him a, a pretty junked up uh, used car. But you imagine how grateful, how thankful you know, that, that young that young teenager boy or girl is, and how, how grateful, how thankful they are that they, they've just been blessed. This car has been given to them. Uh, you can imagine them by the way they treat that car. You make, you know, they're making sure that they're washing it, uh, they're, they're taking care of it, they're getting the oil changed, they're making sure they're putting air in the tires, making sure it's clean, they're very grateful for it, they're, very, they're super thankful for it. If there's a problem or issues with it, they're going to make sure they get it done really quickly because they've really been just touched and overwhelmed and really, really convicted because of the love and, and the care and the kindness that was shown to them by entrusting this thing that's given to them. So the thing that was done for them then compels them to act differently. Well, well they're going to maybe save up a little bit more money than went to something else. We'll just save it to the side so I can be able to take care of this car that's over here. Um, because they really love and appreciate what was given to them. I think that's actually kind of the way that God's grace is supposed to work with us. The things that have been given to us. The blessings. The life. The liberty that's been given to us. The salvation now. But also the fullness of that salvation later. If we're really touched by that. If we're really compelled. If we're really truthfully thankful and grateful for that. That should naturally just change the way that we live our lives. And that's exactly what Titus is talking about here. Is that this, this grace of God that's appeared, the salvation that's been given, this opportunity to save that's been given to mankind, that's presented to anybody who's willing to ha have faith and participate in it. It should teach us to want to stop living the lives that we were living formerly and then to live a different life and a new life. Um, to turn away from ungodliness, to turn away from worldly desire, to turn away from what the world is trying to feed us, the influence of it, and then to turn ourselves to what God is trying to give us and to feed us and offer us. Um, so there's three things that are mentioned here in verse 12. We're denying ungodliness and worldly desires, but then what we're doing then is we're turning to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. I just want to take the last few moments and minutes um, of just the lesson here to talk about how do we live sensibly? How do we live godly? And how do we live righteously in this present age? Um, so we'll start with sensibly. How God's grace compels us and changes us to live a sensible life. Um, at least the way that, that, that I've interpreted that and the way I've thought about it, I think all of these things, you can have a sermon just on each of these um, or a series of lessons. But the way I've thought about that is really just being content with the life that I have and, and what the things that God has given me, being content with those things. Um, if you think about God's grace, we think about all the things that we've been given. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us we've been given all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That we have this massive, just unfathomable, just unprecedented spiritual wealth that's been given to us because of Christ Jesus. Because of being saints. Because of being saved. We've been given all things spiritually that God has to offer. They're given to us. And so if we think about that spiritual wealth, we think about just um, the riches that we have within the Lord. And then we think about our life here on earth. What that should then begin to really teach us, if we're really thankful for those things that God has given us, well, it should really teach us to be really content and thankful for what we're given here also as well. And so much of the New Testament, there's just so many passages, so many ideas, so many times, especially in Paul's writing, where he talks about contentment. Um, you don't have to turn here, but First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. Um, if you want to flip over, I know you guys are studying Philippians, if you want to flip over to Philippians really quickly... Um, and look at Philippians chapter 4. And looking at Philippians chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 10. Um, Paul writes to them here. 
But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Uh, the Philippians here have been very kind to help support Paul here. And the letter here, we also see that in 2 Corinthians, around chapter 8 and 9, the Macedonians, this brethren just in this area were very kind to, to help and to support Paul. And he tells them, he, while he's very thankful for that, he's also learned to be content with whatever situation that he's in. And so that's another thing, whether he's, he's abounding, whether he's abased, whether he's in poverty or prosperity, he's learned to be content because of the things that God has given him. And we see what he says there, I can do all things through him who strengthens me because of the salvation, because of the connection that he has to God through Christ that allows him to be content in whatever situation that he's in. Um, but there's, there's, a, there's another passage. Actually, this is also another one of my favorite passages. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll start reading verse 17. This is a chapter all about marriage. You know we're not going to talk about marriage. But uh, there's a really interesting thing that Paul says here in, in the midst of this conversation that he's having about marriage, about commitments, about husbands and wives that are here. Uh, that I think is really interesting and, and hopefully just really helpful as this, we're talking about this concept of God's grace. Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while well a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you were able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Um... So at Garden City, we have just uh, a lot of, um, uh, and so at Garden City is also a, a very small group as well, but we have a lot of different people in different circumstances. We have quite a few young people. Um, we, have, uh, um, we have quite a few young families as well with lots of young children. We have other people who are older and who are widowed. We have other people who are older and have just obeyed the gospel. They're in their 60s and 70s, and they've just recently committed themselves to the Lord. So we have a lot of people in different circumstances, in different situations. And I found this passage to be really, really helpful. Because in, in a situation where you may be busy and caught up with everything that is going on in your lives and the difficulties that being married, being single, being older, being younger, whatever challenges that are there having, uh, no kids having, lots of kids, whatever those challenges are there, sometimes you can be tempted to think. It can be easier to think, well, if I was just like this, if I was... Maybe if I, I'm single, maybe if, if I was married, I'd be able to be more pleasing to God. And I see these couples be able to do these things. Well, I could do those things, and, and God would really like that. Or maybe you're married. Well, it's not that I would divorce, but, you know, you think about a single person. They have all this more free time. I've got the kids and the wife, and I don't have as much time as you know, this brother or sister over here who's not married or has children. You begin to think, like, if I'm really in a different situation, then I'm able to really begin to please God because that eliminates the difficulties that I've got around me. And Paul says, well, that's, that's a bunch of foolishness. God called you in the condition in which you're in because he was able to use you despite and even because of your condition to even bring glory to heaven. 
And he tells them, that's when he brings up this idea of circumcision. Don't, don't worry about circumcision. What you should focus on is serving God. If you're a slave and you're in that condition, it's, it, well, if you can get out of being a slave, that's great. But don't think you need to be free and not be a slave, not be a servant anymore to really be pleasing to God. Or think that you're a free man and think, well, if I was just in the condition that this other brother was in and I was a servant here, then I would really be able to apply these. You don't have to think that either. You're Christ's slave. I think the thing is God's saying is, is this idea that everybody, and their own individual conditions and their unique conditions and situations are each able to uniquely serve God. Brother, sister, so-and-so with so-and-so talent is able to use that to be pleasing to God. And you, with whatever talent ability you have, whatever talent ability I have, is also able to be pleasing to God. And that's God's grace. He is not looking for a, some sort of rigorous set of things and rules. He's looking for us just to apply his faith and keep his commandments in whatever situation we are in. And that's what I think and believe it means to live sensibly, is to be honest with our condition and serve God to the best of our ability wherever we are at, and to be content with that, because God is content with that. So sensibly. Um, the, other, the other points won't be so as long as that, but let's think about godly. Another thing that he says God's grace instructs us to do is to live godly. And the concept and the idea of God's grace compelling us to want to live like him, these attributes, these qualities that we see within Christ Jesus, the faithfulness, the goodness, the kindness, the mercy, the joy that he had, the, the responsibility that he had, because of God's grace, what he's done for us, being compelled to live more like that and less like us. Um, and so if you turn to uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, there's this idea that God actually works to that end, that God has not just uh, has this arbitrary standard because Christ Jesus and you'll never be able to live up like him, but God has actually designed our lives in a way and our faith in a way so where we can actually partake of his own nature. And that's what uh, the beginning of 1 Peter here really tells us. Um, if you start in verse 4 of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, chapter 1, starting in verse 4. For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Um, we'll keep reading, but stopping there. He's trying to help us to partake of his nature, to be more like him, to be godly, to be like God. Um, we'll keep reading, starting in verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, there, got my place. In your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so while that's, that's a really encouraging passage, you can then be, begin to think about all these qualities that are here from 5 to 7, and it's like, wow, that's a lot of things. That's <laughs> a lot of things, and me just reading that right now, it's a lot of things that I don't know if I'm, I can quite say I'm doing well in all of these things. There's, there's much room to improve, and I'm sure that's the same with all of us, is we've always got room to improve that's there. And so sometimes when you think this idea, to be like God, to be like Jesus, to, to own this quality of godliness, to, to take on, partake of this divine nature, to be like God, I have to do all these things right here. You can think it's really hard, it's really difficult, it's a lot, and it is a lot. Um, but I'm reminded of something that, that Paul told Timothy. Um, if you flip really over, it's just one verse, to 1 Timothy chapter 2, where all these things... Um, start from and come from. If I want to apply to my faith, if I want to apply diligence to my faith, moral excellence, and all these qualities that go on, uh, really, yeah, it needs to start from one place. And this is basically what, what Paul told Timothy where he needs to really start. The first thing that he needs to really get serious with 
And this is the first commandment that Paul gives Timothy in these letters here. Um, so chapter 2 of 1 Timothy in verse 1. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Pray. That's the solution. That's how we begin to become like God. Because we pray. We pray for it to happen. That's the first thing. Uh, so there's going to be a bunch of things in this letter and also the next letter that Paul's going to instruct Timothy. Some very hard, some very serious, some very grueling tasks that he's going to have. Some very difficult situations he's going to find himself. Some commandments he's going to have to keep. What he tells him, the first thing you need to do, you need to pray. That's the very first thing. If you want to apply these commandments, you need to start praying. You need to make this is the first thing you take seriously. I think that's the same thing when it comes to us. When we want to take seriously the commandments of God, this partaking of this divine nature and how amazing and wonderful that sounds, and it is amazing, it's wonderful, and we're, we're all working towards that goal, it starts with prayer. That's the first thing we need to get serious in our lives, just to make sure we're praying consistently. Praying for that end, praying for others, as we see here, just praying in general, speaking to God, opening our hearts up to Him. That's where it starts and that's where it begins, if we really want to pursue living godly. Um, and so the last point here, he tells us, and Titus is, uh, is told by Paul, that God's grace instructs us to be sensibly, godly, and the last point we'll talk about here this morning is the how to live righteously in this present age. Um, I know last, last time that, we, uh, that I was here, if you turn back to Romans chapter 4, um, we'll touch on it just, just really briefly. Um, we talked about this concept of Abraham and how, faith, or how righteousness was attributed to Abraham is because of his faithfulness to God, his dedication that he had to God, because he just quite very simply believed God. Um, and we see that if you start in verse 3, for what does the scripture say of Romans chapter 4? Um, Abraham believed God, and he was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, well, as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Um, and so I think when it comes to righteousness, it's just very quite simply, it's just to have faith. But I would also exhort you to just really quickly flip over to Romans chapter 10. I think this is just a very simple point, but a very powerful point as well. I'm sure this is a passage that probably lots of us are familiar with. Um, but let's actually start um, Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 14. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Uh, Paul, in the context here, is talking about, in verse 13, he says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's the idea, well, you've got to believe in God. And he tells them, well, if, if, how are they able to believe on him if, if they've never heard of him? How are they able to hear of them if they've never had anybody teach to them? Well, how are, are they able to be taught if they've never took the time to actually read the word of God themselves and to hear the word? As for verse 17 really comes in, faith comes by hearing. This idea that righteousness is attributed to those who believe in God who have faith in God, who trust in God. But that really starts when we actually read. How can we begin to trust and believe in a God who we really don't know? Um, you think about that with any sort of relationship, whether a romantic, a marital relationship, or just a friendship. How can you really call somebody's friend if you don't even know who they are? I mean, 
I imagine there's maybe situations where maybe we've been guilty of it or maybe we've been offended by it, but you know, you imagine uh, you're really close with somebody and, and then your birthday comes, they don't say happy birthday, you're like, oh, today was your birthday? You're like, well, are we, are we really all that great friends after all? Or something big, something important about you, you're allergic to something and they try to feed it to you. It's like, well, obviously we're paying attention all along. I don't know how great of a friend you are here. It's the same concept. How can we really call God our God if we're not willing to listen to his word and learn about him? And so that's really, to really be righteous, it really begins and starts with this. We just got to understand this God that we're even serving. That's a lifelong commitment. That's a lifelong thing. It's, there's, there's so much that, that uh, so many questions, so many probably basic questions, if I ask the basic questions, um, that just things I just don't understand about God yet, more things I want to know, things I just haven't got a good handle on yet. Um, it's a lifelong commitment. But this idea of being righteous and I remember when we talked about um, Abraham last time in Romans chapter 4, the reason why he was able to be so committed to God, the reason why he was able to believe that he was going to receive a son, even though he was almost 100 years old, and even though his, his wife Sarah's womb was dead, was because he believed in God. But why? It's because he knew things about God. He took the time to get to know God and be committed to God and learn things about God that rooted his faith um, and allowed him to receive the grace of God, the fullness of the promises, which in that time was in the form of his first or second one. Isaac. Um, and so really that's just the lesson here is really Titus chapter 2 probably one of my just favorite passages I think it's a very simple passage I think it's a, it's a very just very straightforward passage if I've really been compelled if I'm really thankful if I'm really grateful for all the things that God has done for me all the things that God has done for us shouldn't that necessitate shouldn't that just compel us just inspire within us this desire to just do better this desire to really, as we were talking about earlier in the class uh, while Reggie was teaching, this concept that towards the beginning of Philippians to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. If God has really done all these things for me, shouldn't I want to live in a way that makes it up for him? That I'm able to, when I'm able to pay it back, but to live in a life that I've been given, a life that's really worthy of Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross. And to do that, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he was given up to us for the remission of our sins, so that we could, you know, sit here or stand here and have a unique, but also singular, unified hope of being in heaven with the Lord one day. And that's God's grace, the salvation that's appeared to all mankind. So uh, that's just the lesson this morning. Hopefully uh, you find any sort of bit are part of that, or even just the fact of just reading scripture publicly together with one another, you find any of that encouraging. I hope it is. Um, Titus chapter 2 is just a very encouraging, but also very convicting passage for me to read and to improve and just to do better. Um, I know this lesson really ultimately is really the application of these things, who it's really meant for is those who are saved. It's meant for those who have really been changed, who have really participated in this grace of God's that salvation, to be compelled, to be encouraged by such things. Uh, but the invitation also goes out to those, if we have anybody here, uh, anybody of the brethren here, uh, who's compelled to either come forward with prayers and needs of encouragement by the saints, the invitation is for you. If there's anyone here who's willing to commit their lives to Christ, to be saved by grace through faith, and that example, that scene, the way that's carried out is in baptism, being buried to Christ and raised with him, the invitation is for you as well. And I know the brethren here, and I love the brethren here very much, and I trust them very much with whatever request that is here. Uh, they and God will fulfill that to the best of their abilities. But if there's anybody who's subject to the call of the invitation, we would ask you and we would beg you and implore you to come and stand and sing the song of invitation this morning. Lions call sweet.